Hello, I'm Harry Glorikian, and this is The Harry Glorikian Show, where we explore how technology is changing everything we know about healthcare. And one of the ways technology is changing healthcare is through the explosion of digital images of almost every part of the body. There are the familiar types of images everyone knows, like CT scans, MRIs, ultrasounds, and of course, x-rays. But these days, doctors and medical researchers are also exploring newer types of digital imaging technology, such as optical coherence tomography, or OCT. OCT uses near-infrared light that penetrates just a couple of millimeters into a tissue, such as an artery wall or the retina of the eye. By collecting the light that scatters back, OCT can produce an incredibly high-resolution cross-section or even a 3D reconstruction of the tissue. Ophthalmology is one of the fields putting OCT to use most aggressively, partly because it's perfect for showing cross-sections of the retina, the iris, the cornea, or the lens on the scale of micrometers. But as you can imagine, every time an ophthalmologist or optometrist uses an OCT scanner, the procedure generates a huge amount of digital data. And my guest this week, Carlos Schiller, started a company called Retin AI, whose mission is to help eye doctors, eye surgeons, and scientists studying the eye manage and analyze all that information. And not just information from OCT, but from other types of eye imaging like fundus photography and fluorescent angiography. At one level, the company is doing its part to cure a huge headache we've talked about again and again on this show, which is the lack of standards and interoperability in the healthcare IT world. They want to make it possible to store and analyze digital images of the eye no matter what technology or device was used to capture it. But more intriguingly, once that data is stored in a structured way, it's possible to use machine learning and other forms of artificial intelligence to sort through image data and identify pathologies or double-check the judgments of human physicians. Retin AI is developing algorithms that can make it easier to diagnose and treat common conditions like age-related macular degeneration, a form of damage to the retina that causes vision loss in almost 200 million people around the world. Chiller told me he started out his career as a telecom engineer and he never thought he'd wind up running a 40-person company that works to help people with vision problems. But at the time, when there's so much new data available to diagnose disease and identify the best treatments, journeys like Chiller's from the computer lab to the clinic are becoming more and more common. Here's our full interview. Carlos, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I, I was really excited about this when I when I found the company and what you guys are doing because I'm I'm always been you know uh, fascinated by ophthalmology and so forth. But and I'd like to the you know get to the question about basic unmet need that you know your company Retin AI is is meeting in the world of ophthalmology. But before we even go there, because we've got a lot of different types of of listeners on the that are all over the world that are listening, can you remind people what is ophthalmology? What are the parts of the body? What are the diseases that say an ophthalmologist is looking to treat? I mean, it's everything to do with the health of the eyes, from cataracts to glaucoma to retinopathy. But maybe you can give people a brief overview. So I, I think I will try my best. So um, ophthalmology is the science of the eye, and I think it's a beautiful science because among all the different senses, it could be one of the most important. And if you think about it, you you always are going to have, I mean, you, you sometimes, it takes some time to value how much something is good until you lose it. So losing your eyesight 
is one of the worst things that can happen to you. So it's a very important thing that often you don't recall or you don't remember. Um, mm, a bit more about ophthalmology. So it, we have to go back uh, millions of years. And it, there was at the beginning of the Cambrian evolution, so 550 million years ago, where the first sensors were actually developing uh, in order to capture light. And that, that was actually happening uh, in, in very small organisms. And then over, over millions of years, it actually evolved to cover those sensors because they were very sensitive. And then it has evolved into, into the marvel of science that we have today with human eyes, with uh, bird eyes, which are very advanced pieces of engineering. And it's actually a very precious organ. So precious that we have actually devoted uh, myself personally and the company as well a very big part of our lives to its study so uh, and we so for instance a bit about my background so i i basically did a phd in machine learning applied to medical imaging ophthalmology that happened close to 10 years ago so i started back when ai was not as hot as it came afterwards in 2014 so it was um and and it just came by accident but um basically I, I maybe there will be some questions linked to that so i won't go too much into into detail but but it, it has been a, a very nice encounter and when it comes to diseases um, most of your audience may know about uh, the typical so cataract surgery is one of the com most common eye surgeries uh, there is other different types of um so you have front of the eye and back of the eye. Normally, ophthalmology is divided in these two big areas. It's kind of the two sides of, of uh, two different teams in a, in a football match uh, that you, you, you may think of. And um, especially for front of the eye, you have cataract disease, glaucoma in some, in some cases, which is one of the diseases that uh, physicians and researchers know the least. So still there is a lot of ground to cover when it comes to glaucoma treatment origins and how the disease evolves. And then there is, of course, back of the eye. And retina is a, a very a very wide field where you have vascular diseases or diseases that are affecting the vascularity of, of the eyes. Then you have the age-related macular degeneration with two different forms. So you have wet age-related macular degeneration for which there are many treatments in the market today by some of the top pharmaceutical companies dry amd which is an area of unmet need where today there is no, no there was no treatment up until quite recently where fda is now approving some of these new therapies that are, co that are coming out and it's a very exciting moment to be specifically in dry age-related macular degeneration then there are other diseases, diabetic retinopathy, uh, diabetic macular edema, retinal vein occlusion, and a lot of genetic and rare disorders. So you have um, the eye is also an area where you have tens, uh, actually maybe close to 50 different types of genetic disorders that have been identified. So there are a lot of new upcoming gene therapies that are developed that are being developed and that hopefully will be able to take out some of these very rare disorders so stargardt disease retinitis pigmentosa are just to name a few yeah we take we take a lot for granted that the, the, yes. with this with this optical thing that you know there's so many things that can go wrong but so but in reality and and i've got a few friends that are in the field and we always talk about these things i don't think people realize how high tech a lot of ophthalmology clinics have become over time. I mean, maybe you can talk about, I don't know, some of the different technologies or and data that are commonly used in the field today. So so you have, it has been, ophthalmology goes back to the early 40s. And I will give the whole, the whole uh, 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 one hour uh, description of the evolution of the field. Uh, but uh, you have different forms of imaging that are normally being used to uh, to make uh, different types of diagnosis. So today you have very low cost machines or, or images that are being captured for, from the uh, back of the eye. For instance, uh, fundus image photography, fluorescent angiography, that where you inject a dye that is specifically going through the vascularization of, 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 the, of the retina. And then you have more advanced pieces of technology 
such as optical coherence tomography. So OCT, for those of you who are in the medical domain and haven't heard about it before, is something very similar to an MRI scanner, but for a very small region of the eye. So you could imagine like a very small window of uh, one, th maybe three up to 12 millimeters today with a very high micrometer resolution with the different layers of the retina. It looks like a bit like a lasagna uh, that we say, and then you can basically be able to navigate. So you have OCTA and different forms of, uh, sorry, OCT and different forms of capturing OCT. And you also have now more recently OCTA, which is looking at the vascularization of the retina. So you have a very wide spectrum that goes from low cost 500 to 1000 uh, US dollars, medical devices all the way to OCTA machines on, and OCT machines where advanced uh, pieces of technology that can go as high as 100 to 150k a piece. So, you know, you've mentioned, you know, OCT, right? Mm -hmm. As, and you've mentioned fundus photography, right? I mean, this is where I'm sort of going to draw a line to where, where you guys are, but there's a lot of images there, right? And, and I know a little bit about the imaging business, right? I, I bet those files are all in a different formats, depending on the manufacturer. We talk a lot on this show about how medical fields where data management is a challenge. Um, but is this why, uh, ophthalmology has become one of those fields, right? So is that the unmet need that you guys are trying to, to solve by one of these unmet needs, right? In other words, are there data related obstacles holding back better diagnostics or better outcomes for, you know, patients? So one of the... I think one of the most important pillars, and we as an organization, we also hold for those pillars, is uh, interoperability. And interoperability up until, so which is being able to bring one, uh, the, the information that is maybe located in one device into another device or a different platform, or, or even a patient that will be able to take that data out of the device to be able to go to a different platform, to be able to keep on operating with a platform. Ophthalmology is quite behind in this regard. I would say something in the range of 10 to 10 years behind radio the radiology space when it comes to uh, having this standardization and interoperability standards very well defined. So ophthalmology, even if there has there have been multiple attempts at, at creating standards, to be able to have um, different imaging solutions in ophthalmology, those hasn't, haven't been uh, adopted by medical device manufacturers in the past. Now with FDA putting a bit more pressure, it's becoming more and more a, a real need because the reality is that, uh, yes, you have a lot of backstory, maybe decades of data that is stored in proprietary formats and that is not easily accessible. And for us, and I can tell you about uh, personal pain during my PhD, I was actually operating with these type of situations. But in a way, the, the company has been the response to our own frustration. You, you, I think the best things come out of frustration. So doing <laughs> yes. a PhD, yeah. So doing a PhD in this field, seeing that there was this difficulty to bring innovation faster to to, to the people who need it the most, basically the patient, that was a source of frustration that actually brought us, myself and my two co-founders, to, to build the company. And that is one of the main problems that we are solving today. Some people believe that AI is the big problem to solve, and that's actually not true. AI is just the cherry on top of the cake. Uh, the biggest problem that you need to solve first is the data management problem. Once you solve that, you're able to harmonize, standardize, and properly structure data. The AI part is just, unfortunately, it's just a means to an end for me, even if I've done a PhD in that field, which is a bit sad. <laughs> well, you know, it's a, I can tell you that on, I would say, 80% of the shows, this is a, a, a theme regardless of the medical area. And uh, I just, it baffles me that we can't, sort of standardize on certain things and and the governments don't seem to understand that 
they need to apply the pressure to get people to standardize uh, on this. But I, I want to get to how you're addressing those unmet needs. But but first, let's go to, I'd love to talk a little bit about the retinae origin story, right? You've mentioned mm-hmm. you were a PhD candidate at the Center for Biomedical Imaging at Lausanne University, and mm-hmm. you, you were working on this computer-assisted treatment planning system for intraocular tumors. Um, and you're is that where you met your co-founders, uh, Sandro DeSantes and Stefanos? I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name because I'm going to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, can, I can I can do it for you for for, for posterity. So it's Sandro DeSantes and Stefanos Apostolopoulos. So I, I, I can <laughs> I, I can give a bit about the backstory. Originally, I was not planned to go towards the eye. I was actually, uh, I started, so I'm an engineer by training. I, I mm-hmm. did uh, telecommunication engineering in Spain, where I where I am from. And then a bit more than 10 years ago, I came to Switzerland because I wanted to, to see the world. And I finished my uh, my master's studies at Ecole Polytechnique Federale de Lausanne in Switzerland. Then I started, a P- I was supposed to start a PhD in a specific area, but then this new opportunity to specifically work in in patients uh, uh, with retinoblastoma tumors, so basically in children with retinoblastoma, appeared. And at the beginning, I was not very sure that this was going to be interesting for me, but I gave it a try. And I saw the opportunity because the PhD was across multiple Swiss institutions. Retinoblastoma is not one of the most common tumors or in a, in a, in a, or more, more, more common cancers. It's actually the prevalence is one out of every 20,000 children are born with retinoblastoma and it's a, it's a devastating disease. It's really bad for, for everyone. The socioeconomic impact is huge. And when I started living the, during my PhD, defining new methods to improve the treatment therapies for these children, I, I realized that it was actually a very meaningful way of spending your time. So if you can contribute to make the life of other people better, that's a very good reward. And and um, then the first year I discarded the, the, the idea of becoming a professor because the, the academia world is so difficult that then I said, I think I'm going to I'm going to have a very hard time. And then at the same time, I met uh, Sandra and Stefanos, who were fellow PhD students in the uh, uh, uni- University of Bern in the Arthur Center from the University of Bern. And uh, we share very common, we were always speaking about different areas. We, 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 we are pretty much alike. We come from very different backgrounds or very different geographies. Uh, so Stefanos is Greek, Sandra is Swiss, Italian, and myself, I'm Spanish. But we got to understand each other very well. And back in 2014, we uh, there was the opportunity to go together to a hackathon uh, so there was uh, i don't know if you're familiar with hackathons or uh, it's basically mm-hmm. a weekend where you spend all the all the weekend coding and and then and then you so we went together we spent 48 hours coding with only two hours of sleep and uh, we work on an application it was a social network back in the day when social network were still a thing a geolocalized anonymous message board. And what we tested was that we could work together on whatever the project. And even if the idea that the idea didn't take off, we saw that we could work together. And then we just needed something to work on. And that something to work on was actually the field that we were all doing our PhDs on. So we wanted to make sure that innovation that was being developed, developed in the lab was going to make it to the people who need it the most. And sometimes, and it's a bit it's a bit personal, but it, it, we had this naive bias. We didn't really understand how difficult that was going to be. So we actually put all our savings into the company. This is not a joke, it's, it's fine. And, and then we went for it. And then the, the, the idea was clear, was to make sure that the lives of patients we're going to be better by breaking the technological barriers. And we were three at the beginning, but now we are close to 40 people in the company. And I'm very excited that we are growing every day and breaking more and more barriers to make the, to make the life of people better. It's very rewarding. 
So if every entrepreneur understood exactly how hard it was, they, they wouldn't do it. Nobody, there will be no startups. <laughs> there is this I mean, bias. Yes. Yes, yes. And and there's so many companies I've started that, you know, I'm like, yeah, okay, that's doable. And then you stand and you're standing in the fire and you're like, how the hell did I get here? And But once you're in it, you have to, you have to sort of break through to the other side. But if you knew how difficult it was, you know, uh, I've started a few businesses where I'm like, nah, I wouldn't do that again. If I, <laughs> I wouldn't do that a second time. But, um, okay, now let's, let's, I would love to start talking about the actual products. I mean, the main one is called Discovery, um, mm -hmm. if, I, if I've gotten that correctly. And as I understand it, it's a, it's a platform for aggregating and harmonizing uh, ophthalmolog ophthalmologic data uh, from lots of different sources. Um, but what does it actually do? What kind of problems is it designed to solve in the lab um and do you have different versions you know is there one for the patient side is there one for a clinical researcher is there one for drug developers or is it all just one big platform yes yeah, so discovery is the uh, is the accumulation of all these suffering for, from us and it's actually our response to the problem of data management and the, the, the common denominator across all the different stakeholders in healthcare, be it pharmaceutical companies, be it hospitals, be it even patients in the future, as we move more towards a patient centric data control is data organization. So that was actually the first problem to solve. And that is what discovery is solving, being able to collect data that is being generated as part of with an imaging device electronic health record data, demographics, even genetic data, all of these can be collected, funneled into discovery and structured for on a per patient basis. And once you have done that, once the data is properly organized, we have a different layer where we come in with our AI algorithms in order to enrich that data. And then in here, it's the first categorization. So we have Today, uh, uh, we, uh, so Discovery, the platform, is certified as a medical device for both the European market, and we received FDA clearance back in beginning of May this year, so we are very excited about that, that we can also commercialize our products in, in, in the US. And uh, some of the AI algorithms, then they come on top of this data organization, and then you extract additional insights. And different, stakeholders have different interests in, in some of these insights. So for instance, for pharma, discovery is being used today for two main purposes. On the one side, pharmaceutical companies in the public domain like Novartis, with whom we have a relationship, they are using it for, to support their own internal research and development pipeline, making mm -hmm. decisions on a daily basis of what is what are the different patient populations uh, that, that we are looking at uh, for the next compounds, which are the different clinical studies that we need to organize, how are different compounds behaving. And of course, you need to understand that they have tons and tons of data from multiple clinical studies. So you can just put all these data into discovery and have this collection of information that remains. So even if the people change and different teams are using it, so that remains. An extension of that version is discovery for clinical studies. So while discovery unity, the first one for internal research and development is used by pharma, clinical studies enables you to run decentralized clinical studies at scale. And again, the same problem remains data organization, analysis, data collection, and they will have a different type of flavor that enables you to do real time management and monitoring of the clinical study. So here we have two products that are for a very specific segment. And of course, if you remember our ulterior goal, we want to make sure that we elevate the quality of care for patients. So there is no reason to stop there with our products. We have now uh, in the last, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we are releasing our first clinical product for, for the uh, clinics and hospital segment. It's, it's called Discovery Core. 
And it's a, a clinical academic research tool that can be used to basically support your internal research. So people working in ophthalmology, physicians that are very busy in the in the daily routine that they want to start doing some research, but they don't have the time. Hopefully, Discovery Core is going to make it very easy to work with peers to some to use some of our AI algorithms on top of that and basically uh, increasing the pace of innovation of the field as a whole. And then you can imagine that because they are relying on some similar background technology, then we can just connect the dots. And that has a lot of potential additional value generated. So collecting real world evidence, being able to accelerate the development of clinical studies by being able to very quickly identify the patients that could be candidates for a clinical study and accelerating the whole process. That's five years ago, we didn't know we could do all of this. But this is the direction that we are going to. And again, common denominator, data management as the main problem to solve. Let's pause the conversation for a minute to talk about one small but important thing you can do to help keep the podcast going. And that's leave a rating and review for the show on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is open Apple Podcast app on your smartphone Search for The Harry Glorickian Show and scroll down to the Ratings and Review section. Tap the stars to rate the show and then tap the link that says Write a Review to leave your comments. It'll only take 30 seconds, but you'll be doing a lot to help other listeners discover the show. And one more thing. If you like the interviews we do here on the show, I know you'll like my new book, The Future You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, Stress Less, and Live Longer. It's a friendly and accessible tour of all the ways today's information technologies are helping us diagnose disease faster, treat them more precisely, and create personalized diet and exercise programs to prevent them in the first place. The book is now available in print and ebook formats. Just go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble and search for The Future You by Harry Glorickian. And now back to the show. So, you know, my, my questions are like, you know, what kind of machine learning or AI techniques are you using, right? Um, where does the training data come from? Because you've got to get these things, you know, spun up. And if you could give maybe a, a couple of examples of what kind of insights do the algorithms generate? So, so for instance, I would characterize at least three. Uh, different types of insights. So you have the basic insights of classification. For instance, you have a patient that that maybe comes in, let's say the, and there are uh, multiple FDA approved algorithms in this regard for uh, detection of more than mild diabetic retinopathy. This is a classification task. You basically say diabetic retinopathy, yes, no. And that is actually mm -hmm. taking an image as an input. You have different algorithms that are analyzing the different patterns within the image, and they have been trained in a, in a way as to identify those patterns. And the, so that is that is done. That is a specific type of machine learning model. It's a classification model. Then you have segmentation models. Segmentation models are going to be a bit of growing this overlay of a specific area. So you, for instance, you could have segmentation of the amount of fluid within a retinal image. So if you have a, in a fundus image for a diabetic retinopathy patient, the amount of fluid for a, the microaneurysm, you will be able to potentially quantify the amount that, of that specific uh, uh, pathological biomarker. And we have some of these algorithms for both two-dimensional images, as well as three-dimensional volumes. So one of the things that is specifically unique that we have certified recently is the possibility to quantify the amount of fluid in different retinal layers. So for instance, if you have a drug for neovascular AMD and you are able, one of the potential things that you're looking at is decreasing the amount of fluid in the retina, you are able to quantify this decrease as a result of the treatment, which is something that before you couldn't do. So we have classification, you have um, also segmentation, and we have some models that are specifically linked to progression prediction. 
So let's say that you have a patient coming into the clinic for geographic atrophy, just to give an example. And with our models, you can identify whether a patient is going to be a fast progressor. So basically, the degeneration is going to move faster on this patient versus a slow progressor. And if you look at the other side from the payer's perspective, when they have to make decisions on who is going to get the new drugs that are coming out into the market earlier, these fast progressors who are going to benefit more for, from the drug are potentially targets. So having progression algorithms gives you an advantage to identify those. And, and then, of course, we have not so sexy algorithms as well working in the background to identify image quality. So let's say that somebody is um, collecting, you have somebody else, not a physician, collecting the image, and then you want to make sure that the image quality is good enough as to be assessed by a physician. So we have algorithms doing that. And this is super important because for clinical studies, you don't want to make the patient come for a second time because the image is unreadable. Just to give an example. Right. So, and then we have other algorithms, but these are more in the background to measure the uncertainty. So for instance, how uncertain are, or how certain are you about your segmentation, for instance? Let's say that you have uh, an algorithm that has a very difficult case uh, of a patient with, uh, with very low quality, and the algorithm is not certain of the segmentation that it's making, of the delineation that it's making. You are able to measure mm -hmm. that. And that can be an additional metric. And we have some algorithms in that direction too. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so you, you use, again, I think AI today until we reach artificial general intelligence. And I think we are still far from it. Uh, it's more the means to an end. We identify a problem and then we just look at the collection of algorithms, how you can get there. So and now then, maybe there's mm -hmm. an overlap here and, and, and uh, you know, I was trying to absorb as much as I could from what was available, but you guys have the software you've built for the labs, but then you've created, I, I thought, some specific apps for the clinics that can help doctors catch uh, problems. Uh, maybe some of the stuff you were talking about was overlapping with that, but, mm -hmm. you know, is there specific types of eye diseases that, you're looking for the algorithm can detect i mean i know, like you said you have this model that can measure thickness of the retina and layers of the eye and you know that can flag excess excess fluid you know accumulating in those layers um you know one of the things we didn't talk about was you know how did you get the training data for this and yeah are there any yeah. other diseases we haven't sort of touched on that these apps for a clinician can find Yes, so maybe the, the normally the way we train our algorithms is through collaborations with research partners. So we have had over the course, since the beginning of the company, we believe that having a collaborative approach, working with research institutions, just of course, preserving the, the integrity of the patients and, and, and the anonymity of the patients, being able to work with these databases of data in the context of research and afterwards being able to, to bring it into into a finalized solution. So today, most of our data sources are coming from these collaborative collaborations that we have with different research partners. Then when it comes to, and, and we are very happy because in a way you can contribute to science because we publish everything that we do. You are able to support physicians because they can just basically keep on developing science and they see the return the patient is going to eventually have the return as well when you have new therapies that are being uh, uh, supported. So if we think that this is a model that works very well for us. When it comes to the specifics of diseases, the way we look at the problem is by creating a library of biomarkers. So for instance, let's call, let's say, neovascular AMD. And neovascular AMD is, is a specific condition and there are different biomarkers that are manifesting. So you could imagine that it's a supermarket. Maybe this is not the best analogy, but it's like a, you have like a store and you have different um, conditions that you are able to identify. And then the collection of these conditions, the subgrouping of these conditions is going to facilitate the diagnosis of neovascular AMD. So we are creating mm -hmm. a library of AI-based biomarkers. So for instance, 
retinal layers is one of them, and you have many different retinal layers and more to come even with better quality devices or more granularity. Uh, different conditions such as uh, there are, for instance, geographic atrophy, drusen, uh, uh, which is like special mountains that are forming in the retina. You combine all of these different biomarkers and a collection of those or a subset of those we put together to support the uh, diagnosis or the management of a specific disease. So I can give you an example for neovascular AMD. You, it's very interesting to look at intraretinal fluid and subretinal fluid because those are uh, different conditions that are going to manifest be, during the treatment of the disease or whether you are reacting or whether the, the actually the, the condition is evolving, and then you're going to use the readouts of these conditions to make decisions on the treatment. So what we the, the beautiful thing is that we started in ophthalmology, but this library has applications beyond ophthalmology into neurodegenerative disorders, for instance, looking at different okay. cardiovascular conditions. So for instance, if you have a specific uh, the vascularization of your retina, it's going to be affected in case you have different vascular conditions, heart conditions, and machine learning can help a lot to be able to use the library of biomarkers that we have to be able to identify even doing early screening of patients or even monitoring of patients who are already whose condition has already been identified. So a lot of opportunities and specifically, so if we were to name some of the, some of the conditions that we are treating today, Neovascular AMD, or that we are treating, that we are supporting, neovascular AMD, uh, AMD as a whole, we try AMD, diabetic macular edema, uh, 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 retinal vein occlusion, uh, diabetic retinopathy, and, and many more. Glaucoma is coming next. There are many conditions, and little by little covering the entire ophthalmology space. And of course, we won't stop there. Yeah, well, they say the uh, eye is the window to the soul, right? So we can figure, we could see a lot of things that are happening. But like, you know, we've done quite a few shows here. And so in the past, we've been talking about, let's say, the digitization of radiology and pathology, because that comes up the most. And that creates a, a big opening for um, computer vision-based analysis of medical images. Um, and the idea continuously comes up that AI can help reduce false negatives by making sure human radiologists or pathologists don't miss anything important, like a cancer cell. Um, I always tell people, like, the machine didn't pay, play poker last night, didn't have an argument with its spouse, right? <laughs> so I'm wondering if the same, you know, principles apply in your area, are there conditions that, say, human cl clinicians might miss uh, that the algorithm catches? Absolutely. I, I fully agree with you. One of the good things about the, the algorithms is that you can ask the algorithm again the next day, and at least without algorithms, it's going to give you the same answer. So that is not <laughs> going to change. And these it, it is not always the case with humans because there are so many additional factors that play a role. And I would even include an, a different dimension. There are, there are very well-known biomarkers where there is consensus and the different physicians agree on the specific biomarkers. So if you look, if you choose 100 physicians in ophthalmologists, uh, retina specialists, in Europe and the United States, and then you, you ask them, is this intraretinal fluid? Yes, no. There is a high chance that they, many of them agree on what is intraretinal fluid and what is not. Now, there are other conditions that is a bit of a gray area. So what is intermediate uh, uh, region of atrophy? What, what is the what is uh, outer retinal atrophy? which is the boundary of the end of the atrophy and the beginning of the healthy tissue. <laughs> you are going to have, for every physician, a different answer. And there, right. is, and there is actually a different bar. I believe that one of the beautiful things about algorithms is that, it, and I, I see that uh, 
you, you need to start walking before running. I think that now more and more physicians understand that AI algorithms are not here to replace them because right. a physician's job is a combination of tasks. Each of these tasks, in some cases, they may evolve in the future. So so uh, they, they may be automated or even they could be supported. So you could imagine that, or at least the way I see it uh, in, uh, with AI algorithms going into the clinic, that um, first is going to help you agree on a standardized assessment metrics. And you could have like little helpers that are going to help you double check and make sure that you have your different um, ideas right when it comes to assessing a patient. So I think they are going to help us standardizing treatment, making decisions faster, and in some cases, automating past of, of, of the work. Because if you have to look, and I think, and I'm sure that in this show you have seen many other people working in the radiology space, if you have to look at the whole history of this patient with so many visits, with a, 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 a tumor that is growing or varying in size over time, being able to have this clarity on the small menial tasks, that's going to be very helpful. And it's going to, of course, support your decisions. And what we have seen at least in, in, in our uh, collaborations with physicians is that they are very happy. At the beginning, they are a bit skeptical, but then they are very happy to have this support and leave the menial tasks for the, for the, for the algorithms. So that was going to be my next question. So how does what you're providing change the ophthalmologist workflow during or maybe even after the the exam so today we don't change it much because you have a we want to we took this approach that having a frictionless integration is better than adding additional software into the clinic it doesn't really work for us to bring new software into the clinic and try to basically make the work of an ophthalmologist more difficult. So we are partnering with already existing players in the clinic, medical device manufacturers, EHR companies, in order to have frictionless integration and to leverage each other's strength. So for instance, in the public domain, we have a relationship with Heidelberg Engineering, which is one of the top companies in medical device manufacturers of OCT machines. Today, a mm -hmm. physician from the clinic with no changes can update the latest version of the software, get a patient, drag and drop it to our logo in the little marketplace. The image is anonymized and de-identified at that point, sent to our servers, process, and they receive a report back in a few seconds. And they don't have to even change machine. And this is actually the way we believe it's going to be. Trying to change completely the workflows is going to be very difficult. Having an integrated workflow where some of the tasks, the reading tasks, can already be done by somebody else, and you just look at the report, that has the potential of improving and making the life of many people easier, especially with the new treatments. So if we, if we go back to geographic atrophy, or a, a more dry age-related macular degeneration and geographic atrophy being one of the conditions of that, there is going to be a lot of education going around the physicians. There is no treatment today. So they will also need to learn with the appearance of these new drugs. We have an opportunity to help them do this. Um, and I think that that is going to be also an opportunity to increase adoption and improve, of course, outcomes for patients with the support of a so digital that tool that is helping. Yeah. Sorry, so that drives me to the you know next question, which is you guys also have an effort to use the technology to support precision medical treatment diseases of the eye. So. I mean, I guess my first question is, do we have enough different drugs for eye conditions that knowing more about the patient or their genotype or their biomarker would make a difference? And what kind of treatment decisions is the Retin-I Discovery Platform help with? So one of the things that we are doing is we are partnering with 
pharma companies and life sciences companies in order to elevate the quality of the drug that is going through the door. And and that be, normally what happens is that you have the performance of a drug during a clinical study and you have this level of quality, then it goes out the door and then there is sometimes a decrease in the performance because physicians don't follow exactly the same treatment regime that is in the label uh, or and then and then you see what's going on here why do i get basically these amazing results in the clinical study and then we go out in the real world and then there is a decay <laughs> yes. normally what happens exactly so normally what happens is that in some cases there is some missing information that you may not be cognizant about that could be specific to the clinical study. And we believe that every patient is different. But yes. there is only so much you can know from as part of a clinical study. So we are working with some pharma customers in, in developing joint solutions where we combine all the knowledge that we have with our AI algorithms and progression prediction algorithms together with the knowledge of how a drug is working to create digital precision medicine solutions which is basically a digital solution that could be distributed at the point of care, elevating the quality of the healthcare for that specific patient, because the physician will be able to, again, through the same process, drag and drop a patient and be able to know what is the best way forward for that patient, given all the knowledge from the clinical study. Of course, it's going to be eventually the decision of the physician. But if you can encode all the knowledge of the clinical study, put it in a digital tool and distribute it at the point of care, especially when you need to bridge that gap on education on how to best treat a dry AMD patient, you have an opportunity to elevate the quality of care from the get-go. And you can imagine that a lot of pharma companies and, and a lot of different healthcare stakeholders are very interested in having this because everybody wins. Pharmas, drug, are going to be used better. Physicians are going to be able to better use the drug or identify when the patient is not reacting to the drug, especially if there are different alternatives. So being able to switch treatment earlier and know when to switch treatment. Payers are going to be happier. And eventually, the most important part, patients are going to be happier because they are better treated. So we see, and that, that to me is is one of the goals that we didn't know initially when we started the company, we wanted to break technological barriers, but we want to make sure that we get there because this is the future of precision medicine. You as right. a patient, you have your own treatment that is unique to you, that is validated, that is verified, that is regulated, and there cannot be any mistake. Because, and I, I think that is a, that, that is a very nice a milestone to achieve. We we are hopefully not so far. So I was also seeing on the company website, you talk a little bit about how AI could help promote the use of telemedicine in ophthalmology, help, you know, more patients get access to eye care, especially during periods like, you know, the COVID pandemic, when people can't always come to the clinic. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how your software can make tele-ophthalmology appointments more productive? Yeah, so absolutely. The good thing is that through AI and automation, we believe that there is going to be a disruption in the healthcare workflow. So today, you visit a lot more an optician or a pharmacy than you visit a cardiologist normally. You, no, normally, that is the case. So we believe that teleophthalmology, being able to go to your local optician or to your local pharmacy, being able to have a closer follow-up and monitoring of your chronic conditions, because most of the conditions in, in, in uh, ophthalmology are normally chronic, so there is no real cure. There is an opportunity to alleviate the growing number of patients visiting ophthalmology clinics. So you could just make sure that the patients that are visiting you are those that are actually in need of having a treatment at that point in time. And you can alleviate that by having 
by having this type of teleophthalmology assessment where you could go to as a, as a user to an optician. And this is happening already. You, you have, you get an eye scan, a solution such as our platform could be just collecting the eye scan. And because we are also present in the clinic, we can make sure that there is this con healthcare continuum where this patient is collecting data and this patient can actually bring that information to the physician. So you don't have you don't have to go with papers or with pictures that you have taken on your smartphone to the to the physician with incomplete and uh, navigation capabilities on the data from your last visit. And, and we believe that the, the good thing is that today the platform is ready to do that. That's the reason why we are also certified as a medical device so we can enable that type of use. And even in the future, you as a patient, you could be the one in control. So you could think of something like a mobile phone. You go to your optician, then you just put your phone there to collect your retinal scan. Your physician, who is already connected to the platform, can receive the data that that, that you just collected, and they can tell you whether you have to go to the to the uh, doctors or not. And all of this needs us to be both. In the, in the phone or in the, in the optician uh, chain or in the pharmacy and also in the clinic. But we are slowly going to get there. It's one step at a time. But but I I am very excited about the opportunities that this will open for patients too. Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny because I've been giving, I, I, you know, I've written a few books about how data and you know technology are changing, how we're going to how it's going to impact healthcare, how it's going to change life science research. And in some of my talks, I talk about how you're going to, <clears throat> you might, you know, very soon be able to walk up to a kiosk or something that would take an optical scan. And then if it identifies something through a, you know, telemedicine platform, you can interact with a physician and then be put on the right track as opposed to wait in line, get an appointment six months from now, you know, and 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 deal with it then. So I, I do believe that these technologies will have a dramatic impact, especially anything uh, image-based where you can really move the needle a little bit faster because we're getting better and better at that every day. Absolutely, so, uh, yeah. I, I fully agree with you. <laughs> I, I, I share the same view and, and, uh, of the future and healthcare is going to come to you in yep. the past, you were going to the hospital to get healthcare, and you were kind of just a spectator, just looking at healthcare and somebody else taking control of your health. Now it's a joint discussion where you are also in control as a patient, as a prospective patient, and that is changing. So eventually patients will be in control. They will be able to have better engagement, better better follow-ups of their own conditions and especially when when it comes to doing early screening of some of uh, some of the eye diseases or even diseases that could be monitored or screened through your eyes such as neurodegenerative disorders or cardiovascular conditions the sooner you start treating them the better is going to be for you if there is a treatment for for alzheimer one day that is working wouldn't you be willing to have that treatment the sooner that you can. So I think that is the... Oh, absolutely. Exactly. The same with high diseases. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can't, it, it can't move fast enough in my humble yes. opinion, right? Because I'm getting older, so I want this stuff to move as fast as possible. Um, you guys were born in, in Bern, Switzerland, but in September, you guys are becoming neighbors here in Boston. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I mean... I know why you guys started in, you know, what, what you were going to school there and so forth, but is it, is one of the advantages just being closer to pharmaceutical companies like Novartis or, you know, and then on the flip side, why Boston? Um, you know, is there different functions in different areas or uh, why, why, why the, what really makes the two centers of, of excellence, let's say. So I would say 
First of all, Boston, um, I don't know about your audience distribution, but Boston is one of my favorite cities in, in, in the US. I, I think it's a it's a very beautiful environment. It's also very European and I'm European myself. So I, I feel a bit more at home. Um, at the same time, I think it's a fantastic life science hub. It's only six hours difference in terms of time uh, time shift uh, as compared to our headquarters in Bern. So I, I think it's a, it's a very good match. And we are very serious about our expansion to, to the United States. Uh, of course, there are a lot of pharmaceutical companies, both in the New York, New Jersey area, as well as in Boston area. So I think the, the East Coast is the place to be for us at the moment. And at the same time, we, we are going to expand our commercial operations in the United States in the years to come. So I think we need to be present just to make sure that we can go take a, take a car or maybe a plane because distances in the United States are quite far from each other. A little so bit longer. A, <laughs> yes. So take a plane and then just go to and meet your customers face to face, face to face. Even if today with, with the, you can always meet remotely like we are doing today or, or uh, through a digital platform, but uh, it's much easier to, and it's part of our expansion plan. We want to, we want to be a global company and, uh, being in Boston is one of the next steps. So I'm very excited and uh, to grow the office in Boston, especially in 2023. We are going to increase the number of people there. And yeah, we will be neighbors so we can go for coffee more often. Okay. That, that I, 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 I always like to keep on top of all the companies that I talk to and interact with. But, you know, just to wrap it up, like, I, I want to step back for a second. Just talk about the average consumer, right? And the world of and what's going on in your world of data management for ophthalmology. I mean, if I'm hearing you correctly, do you believe that we're near a point where it'll be easier to detect and treat most of the important eye diseases? And is is having the better software one of the keys to getting there? I think having having the better software is definitely going to help having the right partnerships and the right uh, relationships or being present in the right locations is going to help even more than having the right software because sometimes you uh, and every healthcare system is a bit different i would say that having the right software is going to bring you there having the right partners is certainly going to bring you there faster that that would be my 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 take and at the same time I see that now pharma companies are more and more realizing about the value of going into a digital direction. The diseases of the future are patient-specific, so there is a lot of gene therapies. There, there is more and more low-cost gene sequencing. So I believe that the next 10 to 15 years of pharma development is going to go with very targeted therapies to very targeted populations. So being connected, being present in the right spot to identify those patients earlier, making sure that they start going through the pipeline in a very cost-efficient way. All of this will help make the life of these people better. That's And we will work very hard to make sure that that happens. Yeah, these are all the subjects I try to cover on, on the show in various ways through different angles, but they all come down to the same answer. So great having you on the show um i mean i can only wish you luck because like i said i'm getting older and i you know uh <laughs> making sure that i can see properly uh is a, is a is a key factor right as as you're getting older like if it's dim light or whatever i'm i'm like squinting and have to put on my glasses but uh uh i wish you great success and um uh you know look forward to getting together for coffee when you're here Yes, I, I, I will make sure we meet uh, we meet when, when I'm in Boston back again. And again, thank you for having me. It was very nice. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. You can find a full transcript of this episode, as well as the full archive of episodes of The Harry Glorikian Show and Moneyball Medicine at our website. Go to glorikian.com and click on the tab Podcasts. 
I'd also like to thank our listeners for boosting The Harry Glorikian Show into the top 3% of global podcasts. If you want to be sure to get every new episode of the show automatically, be sure to open Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player and hit follow or subscribe. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we always love to hear from listeners on Twitter, where you can find me at hglorikian. Thanks for listening, stay healthy, and be sure to tune in two weeks from now for our next interview.